Hello, Silvertown. Welcome to the Silvertown podcast. Let's jump on that silver train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. And today we have a special guest, Elaine. Hello, Elaine. Hi there. Would you like to introduce yourself? I sure will. My name's Elaine Skyler Neal. I'm a photographer based in Colorado. I'm also an editor and content creator. And as you know, Drifter, I also create Neato Squarespace websites. So I'm kind of one of those multifaceted creators. I just create all the time and I'm pretty miserable if I'm not creating something for someone or myself. Yes, and you've done an absolutely marvelous job on SoberTent website that is so free to uh, to jump around in it, to get navigate through it. It's amazing, and I thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Anytime. So you're going to tell us about your sober journey. I will. Um, so I just stopped drinking in October of last year, 10, the October 10th, 2020. I spent at least a year trying to even get to the stage where I could get like 30 days under my belt. And I had several 30 day stints, 60 days since um, around there, many, many two weeks since. And that was even tougher to, to get any traction really, because I kind of always could quit. You know, I could always, I could always quit yeah. all throughout my drinking career, if you will. And so I kind of had this feeling every time things would get bad, like, well, I can always quit. You know, I didn't look at it as ever I'm going to quit for good. And I still am, am wrestling with that, to be honest. Um, I hope that I am quitting for good. I've committed to a year. I really felt like if I could get to a year of no alcohol, that I could probably, you know, not look back and keep going from there. And, you know, like a lot of people, I started drinking socially when I think back, like I didn't really start drinking till my 20s and I hated alcohol when I first tried it. I was more of a pothead in my high school career. So I didn't really, I didn't really drink throughout high school. It wasn't until like right around 21. And it's so funny, right? Because I remember right after I turned 21, this guy I was dating at the time, he brought over two bottles of Riesling, which is like this People who know why know that Riesling is like a pretty low alcohol wine. I think it's like eight or nine percent and has a ton of residual sugar. It's super sweet. I can't stand it anymore. Um, but my friend brought over the, these two bottles of Riesling and I looked at him and I was like, who's going to drink all that? <laughs> and he's like, we are, you know, he was about <laughs> four years older than me. And I'm here to tell you that 20 years fast forward, if I would have left you in charge of bringing the booze over to a, to a gathering, let's say for both of us, and you only bought two bottles, I would have been like, that's not enough, you know, <laughs> because that's how much it just evolves. And so, you know, I started in my twenties and, um, you know, just drinks at people's houses, totally confined to socially acceptable places to consume booze, like homes, parties, um, you know, restaurants, bars. I never even really bought booze for myself, not until my mid twenties. And, you know, it all kind of just progressed from there. Like mid thirties, by the mid thirties, I was going to a ton of wine tastings. I lived in Sarasota, Florida, 
and it's kind of like a, a vacation destination. And I was, it was very much like everyone's always on island time down there, you know? And so you're always, you feel like you're on everybody else's vacation. Like uh, you go out to restaurants, there's tons of retirees, tons of people just having a great time on their holiday. And I don't know, like, and you know, it's just, it was a beautiful, beautiful destination. It was voted like best beach in America multiple times, just this white sugar sand, beautiful place. But, um, so I during, during going, that time yeah. mm-hmm. when you were drinking, did it really, was it ever really a problem for you? I mean, did, did you like wake up? I mean, we get our hangovers and stuff like partying, but was it causing any problems in your life at all? I mean, I would wake up, I would sometimes have an epic hangover from drinking too much wine, but I would always, you know, I was younger, so I could spring out of bed and go to work and I had to work some crazy ass hours. So I remember having some hangovers, but I was one of those pretty high functioning drunks, even in the end. Um, I just forced myself, you know, there was no options. I couldn't, I didn't have a job where you could call in sick. And um, they just, that wouldn't have been tolerated. I think I was sick like a couple times over the course of my journalism career that I actually didn't, you know, show up to work. And I mean, when I was sick, I had like the flu or something. Right. You know? <laughs> but flat, um, yeah. Flat out. Yeah. No, I mean, but I think the thing is, too, is like I was really interested in wine culture. I I got deep into wine snobbery. I had a wine fridge that had 50 bottle, you know, capacity. After I filled it up the very first time, it cost me 400 and something dollars to fill up this wine fridge. I thought I was like really making it in my wine (laughs) snobbery. Like I just loved going to the tastings. I loved like learning about it. I so you guys I was, did the swirl, the snap. Oh yeah. How does the, that, whole, yeah. the whole routine, you know, the, the smelling it, holding up to the light, like commenting on it, reading the tasting notes, you know, talking about it with friends. And I mean, it was, it was a so whole So honestly, ritual. was there even, I've heard that there's really, you can't even really tell between a cheap bottle of wine and an expensive bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. Is that true? i I think you can tell. I mean, what I will say is toward the end, I think your senses become like once you start drinking to the degree that I was, which was about two bottles a day. At that point, you either a have to be really pretty well off financially to continue to afford the $15 bottle and up habit or, you know, which I was reverting to just like, you know, um, the Boda box Chardonnay, which nothing against that. I know it's won awards or some shit. But it was, you know, I mean, I think they're really high end wines, you can tell. But the thing is, after you start drinking to that degree, you you know, your taste buds and your senses get so fried that you really can't. So you're not worried about how oaky it is. Not after the the second bottle. I mean, you know, (laughs) at the tastings, they have the whole like, ritual so that you don't burn your palate, like they start you off with like, you know, champagnes, and then you end up in like the red Bordeaux. You don't go to from reds to whites. It's like, no, no. So you were a freaking expert at this shit. I mean, I was I was to the degree that I had a notebook. I was taking notes about my favorite wines and their regions. And I think I would have maybe like I had friends that were distributors and I was thinking about like, well, maybe if it doesn't work out in journalism, I go into like, you know, uh, 
do doing something like what they do distributing. Um, but I'm glad I didn't do that. Um, it really wouldn't have been those people, even, even if you kind of get to the point where you're maybe an expert hobbyist at wine drinking, you're not, and you think, you know, a lot, you still don't know anywhere near compared to what those people who are professionals that are sommeliers, like there's only something like a few dozen master sommeliers in the world. I've, so, I've, I've never even heard that word till now. Oh, it's like a expert, um, wine, a wine expert. Like they make a ton of money. They work for brands and they go around for like the MGM grand and they'll pick out or like big brands like that. And they'll pick out wines for their, all their, you know, restaurant portfolio, you know? So it's, they'll literally go to like Tuscany and pick out the wines from the, from the vineyards. So yeah, I got really into it. And so that allowed me to kind of be a little bit immune from the rest of the stuff because there were so many people, there were so many people of all ages and demographics. And, you know, so when you're in a room full of 200 people enjoying wine, you really don't feel like there's anything wrong with it. You know, you're kind of like, this is what everybody's doing. And people were just drinking, you know, at a wine taste, you can easily consume a couple bottles of wine. You know, and thankfully, like I rode my bike to most of these tastings. So I was kind of like drunk pedaling home. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, and then I think after that, like once I moved out to so so right around um, my late 30s or somewhere. So so I left journalism. I was a I, that was the other thing I on top of like society telling me and, and the the community or that I was in kind of reinforcing my biases that it was okay to drink in these situations to this degree and that there was nothing wrong with it. On top of that, I had a really stressful career. I was a photojournalist for 18 years. I saw some crazy shit on a daily, weekly basis, uh, things that people, ordinary people shouldn't really have to see. Like I've seen more dead bodies than most individuals. I've seen dead bodies of children. I've covered huge court cases nationally where, you know, child abduction trials, murder trials as what they call the pool photographer. So I'd be standing there right next to the court TV guy and I'd be producing images that would be distributed to all the national media um, from that trial. When you're that close into this, mm -hmm. you're, you kind of get emotionally involved too, don't you? Oh yeah. It, there's definitely PTSD. And like what my therapist talked to me about was like, you're almost a first responder in some of these circumstances. Like I would show up sometimes to fatal car accidents before police and fire were there and the person's like clearly dead. And you're just, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of things that you see that you're exposed, a lot of trauma you're exposed to. And not even just that, but the constant adrenaline of having to, to, to like show up every day. Like you didn't know what you were doing most days. You're like on call 24 hours a day then at that time. Yeah. I mean, not anymore. I left right. the field. Um, but yeah, I, but yeah, I would get calls at the in the morning. Um, you know, not usually in the middle of the night, it was a newspaper I worked for. So they weren't, you know, they had, um, you know, so if it was something really big, they would call you and you'd still have to go out like a fatal fire or something like that. But yeah, it was it was a grind constantly. And at the end of the day, you just had all this built up adrenaline from just go, go, go that you had to decompress from. So I turned to wine, really, to decompress from all that. 
then around 2016, I think, somewhere in there, I left the field to take care of my father who had a stage four melanoma. And I knew at that point, like newspapers were really struggling. They're really, they've been dying a slow death for the last decade since yeah. the last financial collapse. Um, I, I just resigned and I had a great year that year. They sent me to Cuba. I had some really amazing wow. experiences and I kind of just felt like, you know what, like my dad had been giving, given a couple months to live and I had, I didn't really have him in my life much growing up. And he had come to live where I lived in Sarasota. So um, I got a great 10 years with him there. He retired his sort of the first part of his retire. I mean, he was, he was lucky. He retired at 53 years old and he had a first cancer. He retired then he was a coal coal executive. He was a purchasing manager for a big coal company. He made like 80 grand in the eighties. So he was doing okay. That's a lot of money in the eighties. Yeah, but he lives below his means. He was really smart about it, and he was able to retire that young. He just lived very frugally. He was really smart about that kind of thing. Um, but um, fast forward 10 years, he just he just had a stage four melanoma, and I wanted to spend time with him, and I knew that it was going to get crazy, and it did get crazy. It was anybody who's cared for someone as they've gone through like the decline from cancer or any other treatment like that it got really crazy he was on all sorts of medications that just made his personality berserk and that was really hard and that's where the drinking kind of really got a little bit more because I felt like you know I had just left my career I behind like I was not sure what I was going to do I had some ideas I was doing some creative projects and then I had this parent who was my last parent. My mom also died of cancer 10 years before him. So um, when I was pretty young, really, and she was young, she was only like 64 when she died. Wow. Yeah. I mean, she didn't even get a chance to retire. So, so yeah, that was, that was hard. And um, then after that, I had like, I had like my dad's death, leaving my career and divorce all within like one year. So, so you were married when you went to take care of your dad? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what, and you had separated what or he your husband was living somewhere else and you you were with your dad taking care of him kind of No, we were still together um at the time. It just was we didn't really divorce till like right when we moved out to Denver. It was it wasn't really related to that at all. Um, we just had been married a long time and had a, a ton of, you know, how people grow apart and we yeah. had just all sorts of different things that just came to a head. Um, and I do think drinking probably contributed to it. Really. I don't really know. It wasn't, he, I, I don't, it's hard. You know, I don't want to say anything against him since I'm putting my identity out there. It's just hard. I think it's really hard for people to understand what people like us are going through. Yeah. And so I think, you know, it was just, it was, you know, the marriage. Well, was, was, he, was he drinking though? Was he? Yeah, he, he, he drinks, I think still. And we're in, we're, we have a great divorced relationship actually. Like cool. as far yeah. as divorces go, like we're both co-parents of our children. We both 
live in the same area. We've committed to being around each other for the sake of our like extended family unit. You know, he's got, you know, we both, you know, moved on in our own ways. Um, but yeah, that was definitely a tough time. And we're both creatives. There was, we were both constantly working, you know, which didn't help either. Right. Um, but yeah, it, um, but yeah, so, so I asked the death of your yeah, dad, the divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you split up and then you dove into alcohol yep. further. For sure. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I, I, when, when we all relocated out here, it was kind of like in the middle of the divorce, but we, we were all committed to staying together anyway. And so I kind of arrived here in Denver from Florida, not really knowing what I was going to do. And I just, it was a major identity shift for me. Like including I, the climate. <laughs> yeah, including the climate. But I just really didn't know. I knew what I wanted to do. I, I just... I just was, you know, I think the thing is, is that some people just do a job, right? And they're happy just doing a job and that, and they don't get wrapped up in the job being part of who they are. For me, photojournalism was everything to me. Like, that's what I grew up wanting to do. I was one of those people who knew exactly what I wanted to do when I was a young kid. So, I mean, I started, uh, shadowing photographers at the Indianapolis star when I was like 15, 16. So I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So, so when I got out here, I was kind of alone and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I, I definitely drank and, and I didn't have a job. So, you know, like my dad had left me money. So I was able to kind of pay, like I took like basically a year off. I helped my kids get through the divorce. Um, I was, I was actually already kind of in another relationship that I was rekindling and I was who I'm now married to. And I was just, I just took the time to, to recover basically, but I wasn't really recovering because I was just drinking all the time. Like, I mean, I was kind of working on some creative projects and I would like, after the kids would get done from school, I would like start my drinking routine at like two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And I would drink till, whatever time I just passed out 10, 11 o'clock. Wow. And that was pretty much every day. Oh yeah. Every day. And I mean, you know, you and I talked about this, this is just kind of funny, whatever weird, but like, you know, it's amazing to me and you don't kind of really have the clarity about this kind of stuff until you really stop and you really look back on what you were doing. Like, because while you're in it, you can justify all kinds of things to yourself. And, you know, I never felt like I did anything too crazy. Like I wasn't, you know, I never got a DUI, never showed up to work drunk. I wasn't, I, I always made my deadlines. I was, I was like functioning. Right. But in hindsight, I'm like, I, I just laugh at some of the things that I do. And it's, but in a way, it's kind of sad. And, and if anybody's listening to this and they're maybe thinking about some of the things that I'm going to reveal about weird things that I used to do in my drinking habits, I can tell you that, like, I never thought that I was going to end up doing those things. Like, it just evolved in a way that was really inexplicable, you know. So, you know, let me just see how I can preface this. So, yeah, I mean, like I was saying, I in the beginning and even in the mid 
mid stages of my drinking, like in the thirties, in my, in my thirties, I kind of kept drinking to the socially acceptable places, but then I started bending the rules a lot. Like I had young children, for instance, and I would, we'd go to the park and I would like start to, you know, bring wine in a, in a coffee mug tumbler thing that had a lid on, you know, one of those ones that stores like an obscene amount of coffee and it's like, you right. can't tell what's in it. I would put wine in there and go to like the park in the afternoon. And that seemed fine. Like, you know, we would, this was all stuff where I would walk to, you know, push, you know, we'd ride our little bikes over there, push the little prams and all that. And, you know, then I started thinking, you know, then I started just slowly over the years that that wine travel mug went everywhere and I mean everywhere like I mean like if I was going to the mall that wine was coming to the mall like if I was going to I'm trying to think of some other like so, so one did time, you plan your days with the kids and the wine together did you Sometimes, like, I don't think it was that conscious at that point, you know, it was kind of like my, my, the way we did things, you know, we lived in a, Sarasota is a pretty small community, it takes like 10 minutes to get anywhere, you know, even to a park and back, you know, and I didn't really make very far trips, you know, I kind of just drove like, and I wasn't drinking like in the car, like as I was going along, I'm not saying that I've never done that before. Um, as, but, you know, I know this is what's crazy. This is confirmation bias, right? So I have actually known, I've known all sorts of people over the years who've taken road sodas. I've known police officers who've taken road sodas out just on their, you know, on their holiday. And I think it's just one of those things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you don't think you're going to evolve to, but when you start doing it, it's kind of like, no, because I think if, if somebody was listening to this and they had no experience with alcohol whatsoever, they'd probably think that's so irresponsible. And it is, I'm not saying that it is not irresponsible. Um, I could have, I could have, you know, even though I wasn't sitting there sipping on my wine tumbler in route, like with my hands on the wheel, you know, I still had an open container. And I could have, you know, I still, I could have been, I could have been penalized for that in so many ways. And, you know, there's been many people in our community, Drifter, that we belong to, that have had their children taken away from them because yes. of, because of their alcohol use. And I just got lucky. It's sad to say, when I look back and I think about that, I can't tell you how humbled and grateful I am that I, that never happened to me. For some people, that is the difference. Some got caught. And some didn't. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I like to, you know, at the time I was making justifications like, well, I never, I, I was a home drinker a lot. You know, I didn't, I pretty much drank at home. I didn't really go to bars and get hammered and come back. I was more of like a mom who just like was, you know, trying to deal with a stressful career and two kids. You know, and, I want to touch on that real quick, just a second, mm -hmm. because I thought the the way I lived that I was like the addict addicts were like me crazy lunatics out there running around since I've got it this last time into the recovery here into IAS and meeting everybody, the moms at home, single moms or whatever, you guys are the ones that um, it seems like that's where the addiction is right now with 
with the wine at home. And it seems like you guys are like being marketed on. Oh yeah. There's whole books around this, right? So um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think her name's Lada Dan. She's published several books and one of them is called like she, like, I think, what is that one called? Oh my God. I'll have to link to it down in the, <laughs> in the post, okay. but she has, um, she has, she's done all sorts of research around this. Like when you look at um, the way that moms are targeted, even, even just in like advertising, social media and things. And like, you know, there's, there's mom and me play groups with wine. There's like groups that, you know, that you can take your child to where they can do pottery and you can sip on your wine. There's yoga and wine now oh, like that you can get on even virtually, you know, and, um, and, you know, like there's even like, if you look at like the marketing on, like, if you go into like a gift shop where there's baby stuff, it'll be like, there'll be like a onesie that'll say something like, you know, my mom drinks because of me or something like that on it. And, you know, the, oh, that's what it's called. The wine o'clock myth by Lotta Dan. It's an excellent book. It just came out last year or, uh, and it's, it's just all about this, how big alcohol targets moms. And, you know, I didn't really realize it, that I was being targeted. Um, and I don't, I mean, I'm not a big TV watcher anyway, so I don't really know. I just think that, like, when I would get together with other moms, which, you know, I had mostly, I had mostly friends in journalism, which were mostly men. I mean, it's, it's kind of a male-dominated field anyway. There are women in it, but it's few and far between. But, yeah, I mean... When I would get together with other moms, like at the playground or people that I knew from the school, like they were always drinking. They were doing the same shit as I was. Like sometimes But I mean, that's one of the best like, advertising is word of mouth, right? Yeah. So well, if one uh, now, social media, if other, yeah, social media, if other moms are getting into this and even you weren't like on TV or something, it seems like you'd still be getting the residue of the marketing. Yeah. Well, look at films too, that were really popular when I was, authority younger like sex in the city where they are just all drinking having sex hanging out partying i mean i literally went to the uh filming or the release of sex in the city the movie which they made a movie out of that popular series with my friend and we decided to take a whole bottle of wine into the theater and what's really humorous about that is toward the end we accidentally we were sitting way up at the top of the theater in the back row we accidentally kick the bottle over and it rolls down the entire theater and we had drank it all. So we didn't really care. But so we were like, you know, it didn't seem like anything, you know, now you can like in Denver, you can go in and like buzz, press a button and somebody will bring booze right to your table. But back when I was, you know, in my thirties, we had to sneak that shit in and I did it all the time. One of my favorite things to do after work was to get a bottle of wine and go to a movie by myself just so that I could decompress and wow. I would just sneak it in there and sit in the back row by myself and drink it out of like a Dixie cup or something. I went to like weird lengths to conceal it too. I once took wine to like one of my kids, like, you know, those like holiday performances or like plays that you go through, or you go to and you have to like sit there forever through like every other grade and you're just like, oh, I just want to see my kid. And your kid's performance is like the last one. And it takes like three hours. I would I would take wine into those, like in a little tumbler and sit on the lawn or wherever it was and just be like, and I would look around and I'd see other people sipping out of 
you know, coffee tumblers at four in the afternoon. And I'm like, I wonder if they're doing what I'm doing. You know, it just, I'm not saying it's, it's correct, but you know, I think the thing is, is that I, at that point, it felt like, so as, as drinkers know, although I didn't realize this until I started quitting and doing research around it, drinking alcohol creates a tremendous amount of anxiety. It does. And I didn't realize that. So I just, I didn't, I was completely blind to the fact that I was basically creating more anxiety for myself. And then I was drinking to alleviate the anxiety. I did not put two and two together. All I thought of it was like maintenance. Like I looked at booze at, at toward the end as a way to survive almost. Like it was what I needed to function. And to the degree that I would, you know, if I drank too much the night before, I had no problem getting up and just sipping on a little vodka in the morning to get my, because I just looked at it as this is how I'm going to function now. And to me, like, I actually looked at it as like, I was clever kind of like that. I had, I had figured out a way to deal with my own stress and anxiety. I didn't look at it as like problematic right away because I had so much other shit going on that I was like, you know, this is just what I got to do. to So even make things like go. the way alcohol gets you depressed and you're, you're like, you think you got it conquered and you're beating it. Were you still waking up at three in the morning? Yeah. I mean, definitely waking up at three in the morning that, that, that when I started reading like this naked mind and she started talking about the three o'clock in the morning, wake up, that, those were slow epiphanies for me because I was, that was definitely happening to me. The biggest thing, and this is like super important for me, for anybody who might be listening and on the fence, like is that it really affected my mental health, but it happened really quickly. Like even, even in all the 20 years of drinking, like I still felt like I, even when I was sneaking booze into the, into every, you know, festival, I would put like the vodka in the water bottle, the whole deal. Um, I, I, I still didn't really feel like, I mean, I knew that I should probably cut back and I would do that. I would take like two weeks off or like even a month and I kind of be like, Oh, look, I can quit. I fine. But toward the end, when I started drinking in the mornings, when I, when I think just part of aging too, as well, your body maybe just can't tolerate it. I don't know. But my mental health started really getting fucked up. Like I would start to get I would start to like get really sad when I was drinking, like all of a sudden, and I'm a happy, optimistic individual. So for me to go from happy optimism to like crying on my bath mat was pretty eye opening. And it was, it was like, it just happened over the course of a couple months. Like I was doing what I normally did. And then all of a sudden I was really depressed and I started thinking about ways to like, it wasn't like I was thinking of suicidal things, but I was thinking about things like whenever I, and you know, at this point I'm kind of drunk, like it's late at night and I'm thinking to myself, maybe I could go on a night hike and get lost. Wow. And, and I would, or I would, or I would like, I, it was weird. It was like this feeling of, of like wanting to disappear, to not exist and to to have, and I also wanted, but at the same time, I wanted people to worry about me, right? Like I was like, maybe I'll, and I do remember that, like with my first husband, I do remember getting, um, drinking and like 
thinking similar thoughts like I wanted I wanted him to know how alone I felt and because it, it's so lonely it is, it is. and but you hadn't put it thing. together really that it was the alcohol had you not really I mean I I thought that it was just I at the time I was also my mom had just passed away and um and I was really sad about that for years like for years because I didn't get to know her very well she she just I had just like started my career and moved out to New Hampshire and then to Florida and I didn't really get a chance to get to know her very well and then the next thing I know she was she had a brain tumor and she was gone and you know it was just like that two months and and um I was really sad about it and I think I I don't know. I was just drinking my way through it. And I would have like, you know, moments of like recovery, like even whole years almost. Like I had, after my mom died, I had a second child. And so I didn't drink during that pregnancy. And cause it was just like, people would be like, Oh, you can have a glass of wine, but I didn't want a glass of wine. I wanted like four glasses of wine. I knew that wasn't cool. So I just abstained. And so after that pregnancy, I was able, I actually, I didn't, it was like, I almost got a reset and it took me like a couple years to kind of like get back into the full daily drinking, if that makes sense. It so, does. so yeah, toward the end, that's the hardest part is how isolating and just how fucked up my thoughts were. I was really thinking like, I should like, I had this, this, my husband knows this, but like I had this like, thought once of during drinking that I wanted to go to this fire tower that I know about at night. And I was like all convinced that I was going to get there. somehow. <laughs> like, and I just, I think it was because I thought I literally like in my mind, it wasn't like I was thinking like, I'm going to go kill myself. I just thought I'll probably freeze to death out there. And now a fire totally tower, okay a fire tower is out in the middle of nowhere. It yeah, is basically a lookout, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I, very cold place up in the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, there's multiple, but yeah, I just I don't know. Whenever I whenever I would get into that depressed drinking mode, and it would be like that. It would be completely unpredictable. Sometimes I could drink a couple bottles of wine, and or my my usual is like a bottle and a half, like somewhere in there. I would I would like finish the bottle. And I would open up another and have like a glass. And then I'd be like, okay. So it was like a good night for me. If I was like, like my moderation, this is, I'm stealing this from somebody else, but it's so true. Um, my moderation was like what somebody else would drink at a wedding. Like, you know, like four, four glasses of wine for me was like moderating. And wow. like excessive drinking was like six glasses or eight glasses. But I like, again, I had friends who did this, like, and you know what's crazy? You can go out to at least I'm sure this is here, I would guess in Denver, although I haven't seen it. There was a couple places that we would go to in Sarasota where you could get um something like a nine ounce pour of wine. And, you know, it's just they served it in like this massive goblet and it's like they even had like a little line on it to show you that you got it was like this huge, like a swimming pool in your hand size of Chardonnay. <laughs> And I mean, you know, that was like one drink. You could pay for, you could pay for like four ounces, six ounces or nine ounces. And it was dramatically cheaper to get the nine ounces, like by, you know, for value sake. So my friend and I would always go there and we get the nine ounce glass 
And then we'd order another one. And that's pretty much like a bottle while you're just sitting there, you know? Wow. And, you know, here's a bottle's like almost 20 ounces, I think. So, you know, um, yeah. So, I mean, the fucked up thinking was the biggest indicator for me that, that, there was an issue. that this was bad. Yeah, because I had never really, it had never really happened to me like that before. It was total out-of-body experience. And I really felt like, I felt scared that I, if I didn't do something that I could be gone. And is this when you started researching alcohol? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I started, so I got like 53 days um, from around April, somewhere in April to somewhere 53 days after that June, I guess in, in 2019. And we just decided we were like, yeah, that was cool. Okay. We proved our point. Let's, let's go back to drinking. And, and of course, right. Of course it was like, we were like, okay, we'll only drink like once every two weeks, you know? Right. <laughs> and that worked for like a month. And then it was like, okay, now we're going to drink on the weekend. And this is what your current husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And he actually, he's, I think I shared with you his, his wife died um, when he was in his twenties, his first wife died of a drunk driving accident. So he, spent years it was some sort of I I don't know like the all the details but I think that both drivers actually had alcohol in their system and they kind of swerved and hit one another um and so I know that after that he drank a lot to deal with the the pain and he was like deployed at the time or not deployed but he was in the service and um so I think after that he quit for some time and like a couple of years. So he, like, when I told him what I was going through and, you know, he knew to some extent, I think, but I don't think he knew that I was feeling depressed um, because I was good at hiding it. But, um, but well, in, in a way you were suicidal like, in a way, weren't you? Oh yeah, for sure. I feel so. I mean, I didn't know, I wouldn't have put that, the words on it like that at the time, because what happened, what would happen was I would kind of wake up the next day and be like, well, that was weird. I'll try not to do that again. You know, I thought I could control it or something. You know, I, I literally I, read a post last night on IAS of a woman that, and she, it wasn't suicide. How she said, she says, I just don't want to exist. Yeah, that's exactly how it felt. It felt like existing would, like not existing would be easier than what I was feeling. And it just felt so lonely. It felt. But you hear you have a good life, right? You have a family, and you have a good life. But you're feeling great life. But you're feeling alone, and um, lonely, isolated. Mm -hmm. Wow, alcohol really puts us into our. Like even if our lives are good, it sticks you in a friggin' abyss. Yeah, right. Like I, I did. I once I got sober this time, I kind of decided to throw everything at it. Like I got a therapist week one. I mean, after that 50 days and I slipped back into like it took me about a month or six weeks to go from abstinence to right back where I was drinking vodka in the morning and two bottles of wine at night. Even with all my determination after those 50 days, I lost 10 pounds too. Like in the 53 days, I lost 10 pounds. And I was like, I mean, there were so many health benefits that I gained. And yet like, you know, it was just like, I slid right back into it. And that's the thing. Like, it just, I don't think there's any way to moderate after you've 
been where we've been in in this space. And maybe it has to do with genetics as well. And there's a lot you can read about that. And I just, um, well, once I decided, like once I started having suicidal thoughts, I was like, okay, I need to throw everything at this. I rejoined the app. And then you you failed you failed a few times though. I mean, you were getting sober and then uh, relapsing too, right? Yeah, I mean, this time since October, I haven't had any right. alcohol. But I mean, then when you first started. Yeah, when I first started, I had a million resets. I mean, I would like get to like a couple weeks because at that point, I really wasn't even trying to stop. I was just trying to cut back. I didn't really think stopping was necessary. I still was under the impression that I could, that it was all my problem. I thought that it was me, my willpower sucked, and that I just needed to figure that out. You know, We're kind of like brainwashed with that, aren't we? Because no, you're if you can't tell ha- us yeah. like, oh, that person can't handle it. You know, alcoholics can't handle it. That's their problem. Whereas it's the booze is the problem. And once I started reading books, it was like, look, it's not you. It's this fucking poison you're putting in your body. It fucks up your brain. It makes you addicted. You know, you have to get this in your mind. Once I got once I started seeing through that lens, I was able to get behind it a lot more. You know, because, you know, at first I just thought, what's wrong with me? And, you know, there are so many people on the app. You can just go right back to day one and read post after post. What's wrong with me? Right. And that is, you know, why can't, means, why can't I stop? Why can't I stop? What's wrong with me? And once you realize it's totally not you. <laughs> and then you really see a lot free. of people that um, I have one person that I'm thinking of. Her goal was 100 days. She did it. She thought she conquered it. And then it ended up being uh, relapsed every other day. And and she was just like, it was like a horror show for her, you know? So I guess we're getting ready to step into where you started to get into your recovery, right? Yeah. So it's been about five months. Actually, I just hit the 165 day milestone last night. Woo. Congratulations. 165. Hey. Yes. Woo. 165. Um, so I was saying that I threw everything at it. I've got a therapist. I meet with her every couple of weeks. I've never done therapy before. It's totally new to me. It's, it's weird talking about like unpacking all of your old issues. You know, that's been interesting slash difficult. You know, there are a lot of things I didn't really realize. Um, one thing I didn't really realize that has come out in therapy is I've just struggled with loneliness for a long time, like because my parents were pretty absent throughout my existence. Like as a kid, they got divorced when I was young. They both worked jobs. I was a latchkey kid, etc. So that's been really cool to kind of uncover. But at the same time, like, you know, a lot of people come into recovery and they they really want to, you know, figure out the why of their drinking. And I think like trying to figure out the why of your drinking is kind of like trying to uncover some sort of kind of elusive skeleton key to a house and like, you know, the countryside that's all dilapidated and you've just bought it maybe. And now you're trying to like go and unopen, you know, open up all the doors in this old place. It's like, even if you had the key to all those doors, like, do you really want to know what's in there? <laughs> you know? Right. And 
I kind of like, I, I guess what my, I don't know how many people you've talked to who are doing the steps. I am not in AA and I'm not doing the steps that could change. I've kind of read some other AA alternatives like Russell Brand's recovery book, where he kind of like talks about the, his interpretation of AA, which is useful to me. I just wasn't re- raised in religion. So I have, I struggle with like the ideas of higher power and surrender because to me, like, especially since I struggled so long with the alcohol thoughts of like, how come I can't moderate? What's wrong with me? Like, yeah. So one of the recovery books that I read was Russell Brand's recovery book, which kind of is an, a reinterpretation of AA's 12 steps. And it's pretty funny to read, actually. It's like, you know, he's a comedian a anyway, million, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, it's all F-bombs, the 12 steps. Um, I think, I think that was helpful because I struggle with the ideas of surrender in a, in the traditional a format and higher power. I just wasn't raised in religion. So it's hard for me to figure that out. And so I've mostly been, I, I did join, this is useful, especially for women resource, I think to know about is Holly Whitaker has a program called Tempest. And you can, it's an online course and recovery community and you can go on. It's, I'm not saying men don't join this program because I'm sure they do, but it's, it's definitely geared toward women and, and um, anyone in the LGBTQ community, they have um, community groups for that on there um, that are just specific to that community. So I think that's really awesome. I think, um, so I joined that program. It's, it's, paid it's a membership per year there's three different levels and you get like courses and you go through them on your own and there's videos and just things that teach you about the addictive cycle so I kind of enrolled in that got a therapist started meditating every day morning and evening started working out more and just trying to like embrace things like self-care and things like goals like I have goals that I've never been able to do because of alcohol and it getting in the way mostly physically like I got high blood pressure when I was a young like young like 25 or something my parents both both had it so when I would drink it would make my heart feel like it was going to explode and now out here at high altitude if we would go hiking after a night of drinking I felt like I was going to die so um it's just awful like and so now I have like these goals. I'd love to climb a, climb a 14 year this year. I've never done that. It's a Colorado rite of passage. So I'm kind of training for that. Um, it's kind of hard to do that in the winter, but we've been doing lots of hikes and I've been doing all sorts of strength training. It just makes me feel good. I'm kind yeah. of one of those people who's like, okay, I'm 43 and I might actually get in the best shape of my life at this point. Um, so that feels really good. And, you know, there was a guy just on the Zoom the other night. His name's Nate. I think he's got like nine months. And he was, he said something really cool. He said, you know, you've got to, you've kind of got to have tunnel vision. You kind of have to get pissed and stay pissed. And that's one of the things I've been struggling with lately is when I first quit this, I was really pissed at alcohol. I felt like, God, look how much this has warped my perspective. Like, everything, the way that I look at things has been even down to, and I know the other drinkers can relate to this. Alcohol permeates your fun and enjoyment of everything, almost stripping it away. Like when you're in like a museum, just enjoying some amazing paintings, 
I would be thinking like, where's the, where's the nearest bar around here? You know, <laughs> or like, you know, we would go on hikes and afterward I would either have like a thermos of vodka ready to go, or we'd go hit some bar and we'd like, you know, just guzzle down Moscow mules right after our hike, totally just, you know, re totally just eliminating all the healthiness of that hike. Or even sitting down, down and enjoying, uh, the thoughts of the hike. I mean, you're going yeah. right from the hike. You're not even enjoying it anymore or even the picture oh, yeah. of the museum and you're going Absolutely. right. Absolutely. Yeah. All that shit's just even, blown off. Oh yeah. Even while we were on the hike and it would get hard, I would say to my partner, Vincent, I'd be like, I can't wait for the Chardonnay after this, <laughs> you know? I mean, it just bleeds into all of your thoughts and what you're doing. And so t that is one of the things that I didn't expect is to have that gone is so relieving. Like when you don't think about, you know, I'm not going to lie. I still think about booze. Like it's still there. Like I'll still, I'll see this just happened to me the other night. We were at, I told you, we were at this pizza pub and some, everybody was outside socially distanced, enjoying their beer and wine. And we both were feeling very like kind of left out. And then we found that they had some non-alcoholic kombuchas on the menu. And we were like, and we tried them for the first time. We were like, awesome. This is great. Maybe this will get us over our kind of like feeling left out vibe right now. Because, you know, when you're around, everyone is sucking it back, laughing and enjoying themselves. It's, it can get hard. You can't. But it, that's get... the, the elute. It's really a friggin' illusion. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. that's not the reality of it. Oh, yeah. They could, the same couple could go home, have five more drinks and get into a, a screaming match. You well, know? not and even that you could be sitting there having just as much fun in that same setting with alcohol. Cause you don't need it to la laugh, but your brain's telling you that little trickster yeah. in your mind. Oh, look, they're having fun and you're not. Yeah. That trickster mentality. I'm just, I guess what I'm just confessing here is that it's hard to, it's hard to keep that perfect mindset a hundred percent of the time. You're going to be vulnerable. You're going to think some weird shit. And, and I love where Catherine Gray and the unexpected joy of being sober. She talks about like not giving her addict voice, the megaphone, the more that she shuts it down right away, it doesn't have a chance to grow bigger in her mind. And that's really useful for me. I've never read any of her books, but I've had oh. people say, stuff to me and i'm like wow me and her think a lot alike because to me you've got to shut i don't care how big the thought i on this time in my sobriety and i've been doing i've been recovering my whole freaking life i don't let now this time with what i've learned through craig beck annie grace um because i'm not a 12 stepper either but i believe that everybody can you know whatever their path is if that works for you fine but now before that voice even gets a little if it's a little thought i was practicing just shutting it down yeah before those grow and then like you say you've got the megaphone yeah it's hard it's practice it takes practice and that's that's another thing you don't really realize in this journey is that some of the stuff is is going to take practice you know, and you're going to have to have tools so that when you yeah. are at that pizza place mm -hmm. and everybody is, is drinking and the trickster stock starts to shit that you can say, no, that's bullshit. You know? Yeah. And you know, what's 
been weird that I didn't expect as well is that I, you know, the first three months I was really ready for sobriety. So actually the first three months were pretty easy for me apart from the physical stuff, like the detox. I didn't have to, you know, DTs, thank God, or any of that. Um, I did have like insomnia and, you know, all sorts of sweating and weirdness, but, but, and foggy brain. Like I felt like I didn't have a brain for like a month. Like I, it was just, the first month of like getting sober yeah yeah and um but what i've found is that like even despite that i wasn't really experiencing many cravings because i was really ready to quit drinking i had like i had been to the sober part of the island and i knew what was there and i knew what that was like and i really wanted to get back there so i knew i just had to kind of wait those things out and tough it out and so I kind of just had blinders on, like, let's just do this. Whereas, you know, some people, I don't know. So that was not as hard for me. What's been harder is like this last month actually has been harder because I think, you know, it's just, it's, it feels more like I have to actively put tools or things in place that I have to enact to remind myself of why I stopped in the beginning, because, um, you know, that they, uh, What's his name? There's an author who talks about this, the fading effect bias, William Porter, in his book. What is it called? It's not Alcohol Lie to Me. That's uh, Craig Beck. No, it's, I, I know which one you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. And I can't remember. So he's, yeah, uh, I'll probably think of it while I'm saying it, but he talks about I think about I have that. that book too. Yeah. He talks about fading effect bias that basically over time, you know, you kind of only remember the good parts of drinking and you kind of forget the bad parts of drinking. So that's why so many drinkers will end up returning to drinking because they'll convince themselves, well, it wasn't really that bad. And look, I stopped. I can re that's the hardest thing that I deal with is, okay, well, I stopped. I can just start again and restop, you know, because that's, and that's really hard. If you've been successful at stopping drinking, it hasn't been too hard. I think you've got to find something I'm feeling anyway, that I have to find something I need to dig deeper than just, you know, I have to think about why I'm stopping and, and more wholeheartedly than because otherwise I can, I can be prone to thinking things like, well, I could just have some drinks on this vacation that I'm about to take and then restart again. That is thinking that I find myself in and it's hard to talk myself out of it. But I do know that more than likely that week of drinking wouldn't be a week. It would be a month. And also like I, I enjoy not drinking. Like I enjoy going on hikes now and feeling like breathing in the air and appreciating it and not, and looking around me and, and just experiencing the awe of it and feeling all that emotion versus just thinking in the back of my mind, did we bring enough Chardonnay? You know? so that's another part of this too, right? I mean, you drank all these years, you've hidden emotions. Has that like filling these new emotions? Has that been complicated for you? Yeah. Well, I don't think I have like a Prince of Tides moment in me where I'm going to remember something that has been suppressed forever. But I do think that, yeah, I mean, I was numbing for so long and that's another thing that I think, people who stop drinking do realize you hear it all the time around the 30 day, 60 day mark. 
where people start feeling like sad out of nowhere or just elation at the drop of a hat. And yeah, I was, I, I was with my daughter. We were hiking in Canyonlands. We were scurrying up this really perilous rock face kind of a deal. She turns around and she just stops and spreads her arms out, puts her head back and just takes this deep breath. Like she was just breathing in the environment. And that one moment made brought me to tears. Like I was trying to hide them from her, you know, because wow. she probably wouldn't get it, you know, but I was just like, and I'm even like tearing up a little bit, just thinking about it because just that like sense of wonder, that appreciation for a natural setting, something just like a moment in life, whatever it is, is just lost when you are constantly numbing. You don't get that drinking. You don't get that at all. You don't even realize you don't get it because you're, you don't. maybe you know that you're numbing pain because there's plenty of people who've dealt with physical pain and they're using booze and painkillers perhaps to deal with their pain. And I totally get that. Thank God I've never been in that situation. I was more just trying to numb anxiety and stress, which is what I thought I was doing. And well, also you, I just enjoyed it. You were creating yourself. You, mm-hmm. Yeah, drinking, sure. you're creating your ang- anxiety, you're creating your stress, you're creating your um, depression. Yeah. And then you're drinking more. So you don't so that you can deal with it. Exactly. Isn't it insane? It is insane. And I think when you wake up to it, it is really feels like an awakening. Like you start looking around at what everybody else is doing kind of with a huh. Like, you know, you're kind of, you feel a little bit more wise. And that's, that's also what's really rewarding. And what keeps me on track is that I feel like, I feel like I'm smarter than this now. And I'm more, it's not like intelligence. It's just more like I've learned. Like you're tuned in. Bullshit around this. Yeah. Like I've, I've been awake to the nonsense. That I've so you're not religious down. and stuff, but do you like yeah. believe in a soul? Like there's an inner you or something like that? I think so. I think, I think that's why I did like Russell Brand's book. He talks about like his higher power being nature or natural forces. And I do, I feel like when I meditate, I try to like connect with some sort of universal breath or something like that, that makes me feel connected to something bigger than me. You couldn't do that drinking though. No, there was no, who cares about that when you're drinking? You can't even think beyond like a, that day or even the next 15 which, minutes which shows you that part of you because you can't you never think about it that part of you is dying i know that part of me was dead yeah you mean the drinking part of you no i mean my like my soul because i've, I've oh. never i'm not feeding it right yeah i'm not even thinking about it that's a good point my when you my oh, go ahead. nine months right now um See, when I came back last time, I knew I was dead inside. I was dead. Now, now I don't know if you felt that way, too. I don't um, know that I felt it at the time. But when I look back at pictures of myself, I kind of have dead eyes. Like, I can tell the difference between images of me when I'm sober and not sober. And that's why I, like, posted that picture of me when I was 20. Like, it kind of brought me to tears when I saw it. Like, this picture of myself just at 20 years old before I started drinking, hugging a tree. I just was so happy. I could tell. And I remember that moment. And some of these other pictures I find, I'm like, God, I don't even remember that. You know, it's like 
it's like I spent so much of my 30s in this alcohol consumed, like, when am I going to get it? When am I going to do it? What, like, how long am I going to drink today? Should I not, you know, inner conflict for years. So, you know, here you are, you never thought about your soul before mm -hmm. or, or that inner you, but now you're meditating and stuff. Are you feeling, is there like a new you in there? You're that you're like, that's being filled. I think so. Little by little. Right. I mean, it's only been five months. So I do feel like, I do feel like a more, um, I do feel like a more whole me. Like I do feel like I'm, I'm recovering who I was, which is what a lot of people talk about in this journey, like that they're trying to find themselves again. And I do think that's so true. Like you just, you start thinking, you start remembering parts of yourself, um, you know, that, that are now free from all that constant booze thought. Like I'm, I never worried about that when I was 20, but right. you know, now, so to be free well, there's, of all that, there's something that got to, that has to drive us mm -hmm. when we can be, we have a career, a home, a great family, and we're still alone, you know? Yeah. I mean, so, and I'm, I'm wondering, I'm just thinking out loud, if that's part of that, that inner you that you haven't been feeding, do you feel any of that now? The loneliness? Yeah. I don't, I don't feel as alone. I, I, I don't, I think I do realize that that was probably part of the booze and also just, you know, I'm kind of a natural in, introvert anyway. I always have been. Um, so sometimes I would drink to socialize, to feel normal. And, um, and, but I also drank to feel less alone or to cope. Like some, sometimes when I would drink, I would feel like a little doorway would open up in my mind to something um, like a higher thought process. Like I love to write, for instance, when I was drinking, I felt like, so I was really afraid of losing that whenever I sobered up. I was afraid that I couldn't connect with myself anymore, which sounds bad, kind of. Do you think that because you thought you could write better and everything, do you think that you're more creative now or before? So I will say that I do think that when I was drinking, I kind of was able to get out of my own way sometimes while drinking. Like sometimes people who write and create, they're very well aware that there's like, it's not so much the actual process is hard. It's sitting down and getting over yourself that's hard and to just start that process. And so the drinking kind of allowed me to relax and to just not be worried about my own like like as i'd be writing like this isn't god this is stupid you know <laughs> or something oh, gotcha. that right. was all gone like my fears of what i was writing the worthiness of it all that was kind of stripped away so i'm not gonna say that there wasn't any benefit supposedly but it took me forever to execute anything written while i was drinking Right. Like I did. And, and so there were clear downsides to it. And I, and that's not a motivator for me to return to drinking because right. maybe that helped me on some very small, very specific level, because the other aspect of not drinking is that you regain a tremendous amount of confidence and clarity, like booze just chips away at your confidence 
year after year after year. Not only because it, it makes you look like a hundred years older than you actually are and piles on tremendous weight and your face is bloated and red and you feel horrible and you feel like you're breathing alcohol vapors onto everybody. <laughs> like it just, and it makes you just kind did of you, like Did you have to chew like gum and stuff like that to try to hide your breath? Did you? Oh, all that stuff. Yeah. You did all that. I did all that. Like, I mean, I didn't feel like, I just felt so unhealthy drinking. I just really did. Like, I felt like a blob, like I felt like a dead blob, like a brain dead blob. Like, especially when I was hungover, I tried to not get hangover, but obviously it's hard to right. not get drunk when you drink to the level of, of what Cause you're drinking all friggin' day, right? At, at the end I was not every day. I would drink all day. Sometimes I would like refine it to like, like I thought it was a win if I could get to five o'clock and, and drink at five. I was like, Oh, well, I'm doing really good. (laughs) But no, I mean, it's been, I think I've done more in the last five months probably than I did all in 2020. Well, uh, like early part of 2020. And I mean, I, I was holding down, some jobs and doing some other things, but I've definitely achieved more. And I feel like, I feel like I've also, one thing I struggle with is um, trying to be kind to myself because I think I was under people's thumb, under deadline all the time. I've kind of transitioned that self-imposed deadline to myself in my independent career and my freelance career. So it's really easy for me to stack up impossible to do lists that I can't achieve and then make myself feel shitty for it. So I've really tried to not do that now. And I'm trying and I'm like being alcohol free allows you to be kinder to yourself because, and I can't speak for everyone because everyone has underlying issues, but I realize now there are some people who have depression and they drink and that's the, the depression and the alcohol uh, use disorder is completely separate. I think my depression was completely induced from alcohol because once I stopped drinking, the depression was gone. Yeah. Some people do like my wife, um, she doesn't drink and she has depression and anxiety sometimes really rough and she even gets, so that is something that there, that is there. But if you do have that and then you do drink, it's really complicating it. So I can only imagine you're um, you're pretty creative now. I can tell you that because you um, and it's another way. I think that maybe you could you, uh, people stay sober is giving back. And that's what you did with Sobertown podcast. Um, uh, so you're really getting a lot more done nowadays Oh yeah, for sure. I like, I like giving back to people and even just, even just speaking to you, if there's one or a few people that some of the things that I am saying resonate with them, then that's, that can be a game changer for someone. I mean, it really can. There's been so many unexpected tidbits that I've come across, whether it's in a Quitlet book or somebody has said on the I am sober app or whatever that have really rang true to me that kept me going just for that next hour, that next day, that next week. And, and really like, that's the thing you can't see in the beginning that you, that you just need more time away from it. And once you get time away from it and it starts stacking up, 
and the distance is there, that's when you start feeling better, which is huge. Like now it's like, even if I do have the moments of like, I could drink. If I actually think about going in line, standing in the liquor store, I can't even imagine myself doing it. So I feel less worried that that's actually going to happen. Yeah. You're more for you. It's probably more of going to that pizza place and seeing that's a trigger like that's probably more. It's not like you're waking up thinking about it. It's more like being blindsided with the uh, Mack truck. Right. I think I'm, I think I'm um, probably vulnerable to the fuck it mindset because I'm a, I'm a card carrying Aquarian and we don't like to have, we like freedom and we don't like any, we don't like being told what to do for instance. And we don't like, we like to have all of our options open. So in the beginning, I really had to get over that idea of, okay, well, my freedom's going to be like impeded upon with this sobriety. That's really how I had to, and, you know, my therapist was like, but don't you think that, you know, you're actually getting more freedom from not drinking freedom? Yeah, that's what I was just thinking, because if you turn that around, you're actually the slave to the alcohol. That's where your freedom is being stolen. Your freedom is actually saying, no, I choose not to. I totally get it now. But in the beginning, even in the first few months, you know, you're, you're like this pendulum of emotions that is really easy to swing to one side. And, you know, I also didn't like, I mean, I really loved Annie Grace's book, this naked mind, everybody puts that out there. You can me, you must read this. You must read this. And I read it. And at first, I think just in my mind, because I wasn't ready to give up, I was like, I don't like this. I feel like I'm being brainwashed. Oh, really? <laughs> I have to admit, like it wasn't the second time I read it. And I was like a little bit more like once I had kind of started to do my own research and read more books, I was kind of more open to it. But in the beginning, I was like, is it poison though? Because as I mean, it's really hard for for when you've been drinking something your whole life, something as harmless as or seemingly harmless as wine, right? Because especially like, since you were a Kanye, what what'd you say? What's those yes, words? Yes, I was a oh, I wasn't a sommelier, but I was oh. an aspiring sommelier. There you go. So you <laughs> looked at all the chemical or whatever the yeah how alcohol lives, yeah. fermented grapes. I didn't look at it as like poison. And, you know, like you can't like to me to look at a bottle of like, you know, high end Chardonnay, I, I have to really like look at it through the lens of, yeah, that's probably poison. <laughs> but at the beginning, I didn't look at it that way because the industry has done so much to make us not think about that. They well, not only everything. that, they have the best and the brightest minds in the world. Oh, yeah. That are well, marketing really- this shit. You know, one thing that a lot of Dan talks about is how crazy um, insidious social media is, because when you go on, like, let's say you'll be scrolling through Instagram, you'll see a beautiful girl in a bikini and the backdrop is like Santorini Greece. And she's got like she's clutching like a, a, a huge glass of white wine. You know, that's powerful to a lot of people, to it a is. lot of young women. It says this is what. I, this is like something to aspire to. And that's the thing is like alcohol was something like wine drinking was aspirational for me whenever I, whenever I was doing that. Like and I didn't it could even be the as, mom pushing mm-hmm. 
the the buggy with the baby at the park with the yeah. wine in her hand. Anything. Oh yeah. Yeah. Any of that. Like, I mean, let's see, I'm trying to think of some other funny places. I took wine. <laughs> so many, so many. So, I think um, I even go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I think it, I even took it. I was really stressed out about a doctor's appointment once. And so I got one of those little, you know, those little like uh, champagnes that are like a single serving thing. And you just pop, you twist it off. You don't even pop it off. I like, I brought one of those to my doctor's appointment and guzzled it at like 10 in the morning, right before I walked in, they took my blood pressure and they told me if I didn't stop, I didn't tell them, of course, I just guzzled a mini champagne in the parking lot. But when I went in, they were like, they, I had, that was like right before I learned I had high blood pressure and my blood pressure was something ridiculous. It was like 180 over 110. And the guy looked at me and goes, you're going to have a stroke if you don't get this under control. And he was like, no more espresso for you. And then I, I didn't even think like no more wine at 10 a.m. in the parking lot of this doctor's office. Wow. I just, you know, it was just, that's just my, that was my go-to, you know. So um, pretty much right now, your feet are dug in for sobriety and you're determined to get your year in. Yeah, I feel determined. I mean, you know, it's, it hasn't come without its, you know, a, a, without its moments of vulnerability. I have thought to my, like, I have thought to myself, well, did I really mean a year? I mean, maybe I was setting myself up for failure just by doing that, but no, I'm really committed I mean, I, I am like, I need to do this for myself and not even just to prove myself stronger than alcohol, because I think that is a dangerous thing. If you start getting into the mindset of, I need to prove that I'm not addicted, that could be potentially setting yourself up for a whole it different could. set of failures. I just think I need this for me because I need to remove this from my everyday mentality. Like I need to make sure that I'm not vulnerable to suicidal thoughts, that I'm going to be there for as long as I can for my kids. My, you know, my mom died when I was relatively young. I don't want, and my parents both drank and smoked forever. So I don't want to get brain cancer right as I retire. Like I don't want right. to have a terrible skin cancer that, you know, and I just, not that those, you know, are necessarily related, but I and you, you have so many part. like uh, things that are confirming that there's a difference between drinking and not drinking just in five months for you. Oh, yeah, it's been amazing, the difference. And, you know, that's what I would tell anyone that's considering maybe putting a stake in the ground and, and putting like a real time frame out there. You know, because I know a lot of people don't want to do that. But if I think my, you know, not to keep quoting my therapist, but she was like, you know, it helps to put a stake in the ground and say what you want to accomplish. Um, and it was for me. I know that that might not be one day at a time might be is really helpful. And I kind of am still doing one day at a time. Like whenever I get into cravings, I'm like I, my mindset shifts to just get through today. Don't yeah. worry about tomorrow. Because you can do but, both. Yeah. And I do think that that's important for people to know, because in the beginning, I was like, you know, one day at a time seems so stressful to me. But now, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I want to get the distance. I want to achieve my goals. I want to be freed of that trap. You know, every time I see you now, I'm going to think of your daughter out there mm-hmm. with her arms outstretched. I mean, because that's yeah. like, that's real that's shit life. right there. Yeah. That's life that we're all missing. And, you know, I'm not a person of regret. I'm just not. If I, you know, that's that's something I think people struggle with when they get clean. They they start to have all sorts of regret and you know, I, I, I do regret some of the things that I've done while drinking. I thankfully don't think I caused tremendous heartache. I'm sure there are things I would do differently. I'm sure there are amends that I could make. Sure. But, but I think that, I think that the most important thing for me is to just not stress about those things and to just focus on the today. Because really, like you know, I live 30 minutes from where those 10 people were just killed a couple days ago yeah. at the King Supers in Colorado. None of them walked into the King Supers that day and thought, this is the end of my life. Right. They were just going in for some tampons or some milk or some eggs or whatever they were getting. And they, their lives were taken from them. And that can happen to any of us. Any of us. And, you know, and it's really, I think that is also super helpful in this journey to think of if I, if I knew today was my last day on earth, maybe there are some people who'd be like, fucking I'm drinking, but I don't think I would because I don't want to spend the last day on earth numbing my brain to how beautiful and amazing it is to be alive. It, it really is amazing. And I know the death and the life with, with this shit and we have life right now. And I think it, those thoughts, Elaine, are always going to be in our mind. They've always been in my mind. I'm driving down the road still. There's days on my way home, and that little bastard in my head starts to shit. But we have to we have to have tools, and it's just the way it is. The loop's been built. We can't erase the loop. It's there, and we're going to have to deal with it later on, and uh, you know, as we go through life. But as long as you find a way, like your kombucha. Kombucha. Uh, kombucha. Yeah. There you go. I can't pronounce anything. <laughs> I just learned about it. I went and bought like $30 of it. <laughs> it's oh, did you? expensive shit. I can't replace. I'm like making huge financial gains as well. Like I can't go and buy $3 can kombucha, but I'll do it for vacation, I think. But you can make it. But still, um, you found a way out. You and your husband found a way out that day, even though everybody looked like they were having a great time. And that's what we're going to have to do on these days that we get blindsided to find a way out. And uh, yeah. look, I just read a post and I talked back and forth with this young lady. She had the heroin out on her phone in the tinfoil in front of her face with her dealer and then was able to find a way out. Wow. So. Good Good. Uh, yeah, this is like I couldn't. I get the chills just thinking about how friggin' close that was, you know. And it's just like son of a bitch. That tricks are in our mind. That's all it takes is one drink. But I'm gonna be yeah. excited. Hey, and I want to do. I really want to thank you for what you've done for uh, Sober Town Podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to help. It's and gonna be great. What did ta- how? What did it take you? Like a couple days? Two. Days. two- yeah. But see, it would have only taken me a day, but um, I've never connected 
audio files to a Squarespace site. So there was a smidge of learning there. But um, but once I figured out how to do it, it was just the time of uploading the files because they take a couple minutes per file. But other yeah, for you, <laughs> that's just a whatever nerd dumb technica- technicality. But yeah, it was really easy for me to do. It would so, have taken you a lot longer, I think. Oh, yeah, months probably months. And now you've made it so it's just so I can navigate through it so easily. All you really have to do is make this list, and then it's maintenance from then. Yeah. But if you would have been drinking. Do you think that you would have been as focused? Oh, it would have taken me. I don't think I'd even be offering stuff like this if I was drinking. I think I'd be, who knows what I'd be doing if I was drinking. <laughs> Not that. I mean, I'm, I'm much more, my time is much better spent. I'm much more efficient. I can get a lot done in one day. Whereas before it would take me forever to like just get one blog post done or something. Well, you are just like a powerhouse and, Thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you for welcome. your time. And welcome. I want to get this. I want to get this out to everybody today because just uh, talking with you, you've restored me. You know, so I I know I'm not drinking today. <laughs> Thanks to you, no. but this is where a lot of it's at. I think is giving back with what you're doing today. So yeah, for sure. Let's wrap this up. And uh, Elaine, thank you so much for sharing everything with this and for everything you're doing for Silvertown podcast too. So thank you all for listening to the Silvertown podcast, jump on that silver train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety and dump that poison down the sink. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you. Hello, Silvertown and welcome to the Silvertown podcast. This is Polly riding the train with one of my sober sisters who very bravely told us her story a couple of weeks ago. Elaine. Welcome, Elaine. Good to see you. Thank you. you. Hello. So good to see you. So, so good. Yeah. Um, I've done this type of podcast with a couple of um, ladies who've told their story. And they did talk about um, being on a high just after the podcast. And then all of a sudden... A kind of a crash did you experience that kind of thing as well I think I'm still on the high <laughs> it's a long high <laughs> the happy factor. I think you know I was thinking about this since you very first mentioned that in one of your off the cuffs I was almost anticipating the crash a bit but um for me at the same time I actually outed myself on Facebook which is not a group that I really or a social media that I usually engage in but I do have a friend group on there mostly old colleagues and so I decided to share just a blip about my uh, about what I was going through and just so that I could share the podcast mostly and I thought Mm -hmm. well you know maybe someone will be interested and I couldn't believe how much support I got just from that one um, day it took up my whole day responding to people and I what it was really shocking was how many people reached out to me privately and said, you know, I've, this is something I've really been struggling with too. Thank you so much for coming out and saying something and everything from like liver transplants to maybe kids being, uh, you know, court issues around it and DUIs. And I just, it made me feel so much better. And, and people saying like, I'm really proud of you. That was something that really, 
it just impacted me so much because that's those are words that we need to hear more some of us in recovery because we spent so many years you know yeah, the de- positive de- demeaning re- ourselves yeah the, the positive reaffirmations that um what you're doing is good yeah you're i mean we're just- all so you know horrible on ourselves for so many years because we aren't proud of ourselves we're not proud of this addiction we're not proud of what we're going through and we keep it all locked up and inside and trapped and we're in the hole as you describe and we can't get out for so long it's just so nice that when you finally crawl yourself out of there and you have the balls to say something that somebody's like I'm proud of you it just means so much I just think of that now whenever I don't think about alcohol anymore because I just have that picture of the well and me crouched in the bottom of the well. And that to me, I've crawled out of the well and I really don't want to go back. And then when Drifter started this, and it was a way to try and reach out and look how your one podcast, I talk about ripples. The one day when I stood at the lake and the fish, I saw the fish and it dived back in the water and there was all these ripples. And I'm a very visual person. That's how I do things. You're an Aquarian. I'm yes. an Aquarian. <laughs> I I couldn't believe it when I when I heard that. I was like, oh, we're yeah. both Aquarians. I can't wait to talk to her now. <laughs> and I just saw all these ripples getting bigger and bigger. And it just made me think of how tiny you start on day zero and how it all expands out and the amount of people that you start to associate with and expand out too. And then you start gathering people who start doing exactly the same thing. It's it's quite amazing. And like I said to you, I've, I've gone at sobriety before, uh, but this time was just so different. And I think it's because there were so many positive connections with this, this time. And I call the I Am Sober at my foundation that I built from and everything to me needs a foundation to start. It's like you build programs, um, build web pages, websites. So you have a foundation to start with and it grows from there. So I, I just love the growth within myself and within Definitely. what we're giving back to the community. Yeah, definitely. And I have to say, I really love that visual of the well that you provided too, because, you know, one thing that I was thinking about after listening to what you spoke about was just how those of us who become dependent upon a substance like alcohol, it's, it's such a slow change in perspective over so long that you almost don't realize that you've gotten yourself down in that well it's not like you've just fallen in there Mm -hmm. it's it's like somehow you didn't even know you were in there you know and that you didn't even know that the walls were slowly rising getting bigger and that the the sun was even further away and you don't even it's you can't even see your surroundings because it's that slow of of an onset of stripping of your soul taking away your freedoms, making you feel lifeless and in the trap. And I just, it it is just so remarkable when you get to get out of it, truly get out of it for, and I really think that doesn't really happen until, I mean, you know, one day at a time, right? But for me, I didn't really feel out of that trap till 90 days. You know, for the first 90 days, I was like, 
blinders on, I'm doing this, you know, but it didn't feel, I felt better, but it didn't feel like I had achieved anything really. Then once I got past 90 days, I started really feeling better. I was like, okay, I, I think I'm out of it now, but now I have to worry about keeping myself out of it. You know, that's, that's, um, and Karina and I did a, a podcast yesterday. And one of the things right at the beginning of the podcast uh, we said was, and it's one thing I was told getting sober is the easy part. Staying sober is the difficult, and we talked, that's the difficulty. And we, yesterday we talked about the fear of never drinking again. Oh, yeah. Because it's real. It is, it's real. Um, and you did a beautiful post about it when you mm -hmm. went out to eat. And <laughs> in the end, it, it wasn't bad. It was good because you discovered that they did do kombucha. Yeah, um, I love. Thank God for kombucha. Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a different kind of fermentation that we like. <laughs> yeah, I was worried that um, you know the trace alcohol might be something to worry about, but I can't tell. And I've heard that it's about the same as like a ripe banana or an apple cider, so it's super fruit, small fruit alcohols. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you read the back of some um, of the additives to some products it will say fruit alcohols oh really interesting yeah um yeah i have to read products because my husband has to be careful what he eats but yes kombucha is a lifesaver and you mm -hmm. thoroughly enjoyed your meal out and there were people around you drinking yeah it definitely got me through it i i realize now that it's just forming these new associations in a different way you know we we have an, I had, I associated everything with booze in the end, you know, it was everything. It was like, I couldn't clean without, without a glass of Chardonnay, you know, couldn't take a bath without it. Couldn't, couldn't, uh, you know, go, go on any trip without it. It was like my companion, you know, and the so bath. I started seeing, oh. yeah. Yeah. Going into the bath and a couple of candles and all the bubbles going yeah. and there on the side is this nice big glass of wine. And it, <laughs> It wasn't this nice little glass that you get sometimes when you oh, go Oh, no, it's week. like no, as it's big as the bathtub, you know, <laughs> like you could bathe in it. You probably get about half a bottle of wine in one glass. It's so true. It's yes. so true. And like that's you say, the thing. It's so insidious, yeah. isn't it? You don't realise, and then all of a sudden you get this feeling of, how the heck I am a, I'm not an unintelligent person. I've got a lot of common sense, but how the heck... Or how the hell did I let myself get to this point? Yeah, and absolutely. It distresses you so badly. It, it, Especially, it, I think, too, because there's this notion still that it's a control thing, that it's a willpower thing, and that, oh, can't you just, can't you just say no? Oh, <laughs> I mean, remember the Just Say just No have... campaign we had here in the U.S.? It was now in uh, hindsight. Nancy Reagan, yes. It's funny. It's I was like, looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, and people say, well, can't you just have one? Well, no, because moderation is a word that's not in my current dictionary and it'll never be in my dictionary. It's just yeah. not anything that's going to be there. But you've, you haven't experienced the emotional fallout, as I call it, because I did. I felt high for easily a day and a half. And then I went boom down. And I was quite sad in a way. It was, it, it's hard to describe the feeling. I suppose it's an adrenaline crash. 
but I worked through it um, and came out the other side. And I felt good once I came out. And then starting to do these small podcasts and um, Karina and I have started these on a Sunday because we feel that the more people we can reach to debunk a lot of it, there are normal drinkers and this isn't aimed at anybody who's a normal drinker mm-hmm. because there are so many normal drinkers, you know, one beer, two beers, and that's their lot. Um one beer, two beers, and where's the other? Where's the rest of the crate for me, sort of thing? You know, um. <laughs> that is what makes it hard, right? Because I think there is some sort of mourning that you must go through. That's like, well, maybe I could just, you know, a lot of people don't even aspire to quit; they just want to moderate. And then you're just trying to moderate becomes just so much more pain that it's worth. I don't you know. know if you listened to Todd's podcast that he did with uh, Drifter. Um, not yet. He talks about all of that and how painful it was. White knuckling on the days that um, he didn't drink, just white knuckling it because he decided he was only going to drink certain days of the week. Yeah, what a waste certain... of energy, right? <laughs> and now we don't have to do any of that. And to totally take the pressure away of thinking about it, I think the release, the relief and release of your mind to do other things. That's the biggest win for me, it feels like, because I didn't realize until that was starting. I mean, you know, I still get my moments. Like you've said before on some of our Zoom calls, sometimes you get a, well, this would be nice to have this there. But then I just, it's easier to push it out of my mind than it is to let it back in. Um, It's it's not really a craving either. Um, I Mm. wouldn't say it's a craving. I don't think I've had what I would call a craving for alcohol. Yeah, not with all that we've been through, because once you get to that low point, it's not even fun and enjoyable anymore. It feels like surviving. It feels like maintenance. And that's that's where the terror comes in, because you fear what it's going to be like when you don't have that substance to make you feel normal. And I definitely felt like I was using booze in the end just to feel normal. Like I would get up and take a little drink on the way to work just to feel like a normal human. I what a fucked up yeah. situation yeah. that was. Well, we did. <laughs> and I, I, I've gone through the day feeling absolute shit, you know. Mm-hmm. But I know that the moment I take the first sip of wine later in the day, that I'll start to feel better. Mm-hmm. What? kind of thinking is that that you you feel absolutely awful all day because of what you did the night before but you go back to it because you think it's going to make you better no it's you do yeah we've come to an absolutely gorgeous place now um i i love my life now alcohol yeah free. same yeah um you I have to thank you, really, because you built our Sobertown website, which is going gangbusters. Yeah, I do that. And it's, you know, it was it for me. I know I actually operate another website. I don't just build them. I run a a travel blog, a travel and photography blog called Travels and Curiosities. And one thing that I've learned from that is just how many people there are out there looking for inspiration of all sorts. And so I I really wanted 
um, there to be another way for people who are just searching on the internet, sober living, inspiration, and things like that, to be able to find the podcast. Because it's great that it's on Spotify, but then you want to also be able to try to connect with those people who might not know that there are sobriety podcasts, or maybe they're just getting some information, like they want to look for the best, like they just, they're starting from zero, because we kind of forget, even after being you know, six or however many months in, we kind of forget all that we've learned so far and what, and, and, you know, where we started from. Like, I think I started from joining the app, but then also reading a lot of the quit lit out there. And so, yeah, I think that's what a a lot of us do. And we get information from other people within the app. That's how you find your quit lit. Um, Right. And funny enough, it's, it's a conversation that um, a couple of us have been having is, how to one of the expressions that um has been put out is to sit with it how can Mm -hmm. and one of the things we can sit with our feelings because we're further in but for someone and drifter and i will be doing a podcast at some uh, probably next week sometime where he's going to be talking about act because we feel it needs the definition of act really needs to be put out there. Yeah, and I forget what it stands for. Awareness, clarity, turnaround. To become yeah. aware, then to clarify it, and then to turn it around. So it comes from Annie Grace, um, The Naked right. Mind, which is what a lot of us have, have read. There were two books that um, I started with, This Naked Mind and... Then I got turned on to the Catherine Gray book. Yes, that's so good. Oh, The Joy of Becoming Sober. I've just actually got her other book, The Joy of uh, Being Ordinary or something. Uh, yeah, I've got it. It's quite good, actually. <laughs> it's uh, Because we are ordinary. We're not, we're not anything truly special. We're just ordinary, everyday people going about ordinary, everyday lives, holding down jobs, mm-hmm. raising families, paying bills, etc. But he is... Um, Drifter is very passionate about the Sobertown group, the Sobertown podcast, the website, and his enthusiasm is it's it's absolutely awesome. Yeah, it's definitely infectious as well. You get to he's such a motivator. He really is Mm -hmm. such a motivator. But at some point, as I say, he and I are going to sit down because um, act can help people just coming in because as you say we're a lot further down the road so I think I wouldn't say we get complacent we we tend to forget in a way how hard it was at the start oh yeah that's true I feel like every day I'm just trying to remind myself remember how bad that was mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I've got and uh, I uh, I said it before there's one thing that really hit me hard and I can, I was on a morning walk and I can tell you exactly where I was walking at the time. The piece of, even the piece of concrete I was walking on, I still walk on that path. And it was, it was the sudden realization that I'm well into my 60s. Is this my life? Is this what the rest of it's going to be like? If this is what seniority is like and my senior life is going to be like, I don't want to be here. Yeah, the alcohol had brought me to such a point where I just didn't want to be here. Yeah, I felt that, and I'm (laughs) forty. 
I was feeling like life life is not worth it at 40. What? How fucked up is that? And I used to say things to myself like, well, you know, my mom died at 63. So, you know, and she had a terrible brain cancer and died quickly. And I just thought, you know, I, I got into this habit in my 30s and 40s thinking like, well, my life's half over. How fucked up is that? That's because the alcohol. I would, I think, oh, well, the children are grown up. They've all got their own families. They've got their own places to live. They've got wonderful lives going. The grandchildren are all looking great. You know, that's okay. If I go now, I'm okay. And that's the way my mind had gone. That's the place that alcohol had took me to the depths of where I just didn't want to be here anymore. I couldn't see any joy in life. Then, um, and I, I sat with my husband, who many people know I call my guru because I can talk to him about anything. I, I am so fortunate. And he will listen without judgment. And I cried and I cried and I cried. And I said, I've got to stop it. So he said, okay. Because, and he obviously heard me say many, many times, that's it, I'm not drinking. But even he said there was something different this time in the way I sat there and said, I, I really didn't want to do it anymore. And he's great. He doesn't say anything unless I sit and say, well, can I talk to you? And he'll say, yeah, go on then. And you sit and talk. And I think that's where a lot of the app helps, the I Am Sober app helps, because there's no judgment. Yeah, I think that's mostly true. I've seen some the odd. people. Mm, yeah, is. there's the odd one. I mean, but I would say 90, 95% yeah. of that app is so supportive. especially. For sure. And for us further along, going back to the day zeros, um, offering encouragement and saying, look, we've got this far. We know how hard this is. Um, and I will make sure I never, ever tell anybody to sit with it. because I think <laughs> No, no, I think it's great no. advice. It is. But you know, oh, you know what? Speaking of hard, I just remembered you were talking about how, how you drove by that AA for oh, 18 months yeah. and how you couldn't turn into the AA forever. And that really reminded me of like, and I know other people, maybe you've gone through this too. It was almost like for me, I couldn't not like, I couldn't not go to the liquor store. That's what that reminded me of. Like I felt so many days on a trance to the liquor store that mm. I was no longer in control of myself and I would, even if I woke up and I had a terrible hangover and I was like, I'm not drinking today, invariably I would end up standing, turning into that yep. liquor store parking lot it's, and standing in line goes on automatic pilot, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it's like. Very fearful. I've done it even when I'm sober. You know, you're driving somewhere so often um, that you're there before you realize it. And you think, hang on, how did I get here? You know, um, but the times I drove probably, well, I was so lucky I didn't get stopped and didn't get a DUI because I know I was driving still under the influence. And I would be driving 50 miles to a hospital on the freeway, 50 miles on the freeway, early morning also, traffic. That's what's also so scary to me about the women and the wine culture and how um, just crazy it's become and how much we've all been trapped by it because women, generally speaking, you know, 
are smaller than men. And we, you know, I know, for instance, I could drink a bottle of wine and get behind the wheel and feel fine. Now, a lot of people would say, oh, my gosh, that's so irresponsible. But I felt completely fine. I wouldn't pound that bottle in an hour. It would be over the course of like, you know, a couple hours. And because I was more of like a slow all day drinker. But Mm -hmm. at the end, I just felt more sick, not really drunk. Um, I just liked having the steady stream of, of booze in, it, which, in me, which was dumb. But um, but I know, like you say, I know that if I would have just being a five foot three to yes. um, hundred and less than fifty pound woman, I know that if I had a bottle of wine in me, I would definitely blow a DUI. You know, yes. and 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 I just I just thank my lucky stars <laughs> it never that happened it because happen. I had. Yeah, and I mean, you know, maybe if it had happened, it would have you stopped gotta, me sooner. Yeah, but you, Now, I just think, and recently I had a blood test as well that came back absolutely wonderful. So I oh, now look yeah. at it and think, no DUIs. My blood test came back wonderful. I am not going to push my luck at my age. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy this. And I am truly enjoying it. And... You building our the website for Sober Town is another way of you giving back. Um, these little podcasts we do with follow ups, I think, are so important because people start to connect in this way. They hear a familiar voice. Um, with Drifter, his intro is becoming so familiar to people. That's true. I love it. Yeah, it's becoming just so familiar and it's almost like a comfort. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we take comfort from it. We'll take a bit of a pause so as I can pour my tea and because I've got my little teapot here and I'll just pause. <laughs> well, I'll stop this for a second if you need to go get a drink or anything, okay? And yeah, I'll stop this, fine. but yeah. Okay, we're back. Uh, myself, Holly and Elaine, yes. And we're going to talk about some of the things we've discovered since we've become sober. Uh, so many been, discoveries. Yes. What's your best <laughs> discovery? Oh, like personal or? <laughs> yes. I think I've, I've just discovered as we spoke about a little bit already that the freedom is totally worth it. You don't really realize what freedom you're compromising by drinking wine or anything every single night. And, you know, as we talked about how insidious and slow natured it is too, you know, I would, I, it wasn't always to the point where I felt like a drone on autopilot to the liquor store. I just was like one of those people who would go home every evening and I had a wine fridge and I just plucked something out of there and opened it. And I didn't even think two things about it, you know? And then, you know, over time that became, that became more of a problem as I noticed how much I was drinking. And then I just felt like I have to have that. I need this all the time. And it went from a nice to have to a need to have. But, you know, once I stopped, once I considered that I wanted to quit, which basically happened with various, like a lot of people do, we do sober stints, little practicing of sobriety. That's definitely how I did it. And, um, but once I, what was really helpful was, going sober about 60 days and then going back to drinking because I got to see how easily I slipped back 
into right where I was before. I thought, oh, I'll moderate. I'll do a glass a week, you know, all sorts oh, of things. Oh, yeah. I'll put the cork back back in the bottle. Uh, yeah. Or one glass of wine, put the cork in the bottle, put the bottle away, and I will not touch it again tonight. Yes. Yeah. Fine. And then, like, an hour later, I'm like, well, one more glass. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. Um, and I think it, what scares what scared me the most was when I went without, how quickly it escalated when I went back to it. Yeah. It wasn't oh, a slow it, progress. scary. Boom. Back in. Yes. I know. And even my friend, my good friend just gave up alcohol for Lent. And he said, he, I, he was saying like day one, going back to drinking, well, I'm going to try to moderate, you know? And I said, okay, let me know how that goes. And, you know, <laughs> and he even admitted that moderation is harder than abstinence, which, you know, most of us, even if you've most, many people know. Um, but yeah, he said just this morning to me, you know, that's the thing you get. He said the problem with limits is that you get to a point where you reach your limit and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm just getting going with this. I'm just starting to have fun, you know? <laughs> and so but then at that point, willpower stands no chance against that, you know? Well, no, because um, the alcohol has dulled everything in your brain by then. By the time you get to the end of the first drink, yeah, everything within your mind is all dulled and slowed down to the point where you're not really thinking. So... I don't know. I'm curious to hear what you did too, but like whenever I went 60 days, went back to drinking about 30 days or so after that, I was right back to drinking a bottle of wine, bottle and a half, sometimes two, um, sometimes adding a little bit of vodka in there, drinking in the morning, all the bad stuff again. And um, so I decided, okay, I'm going to stop and we're going to see how this goes. And I decided, you know, I threw everything at it. I got a therapist. I rejoined the app I started exercising I started meditating 15 minutes a day I joined the Tempest group which is um, Holly Whitaker's Holly group Whitaker, yeah yeah and then and then I got a, I started thinking everybody started talking to me about replacing the booze and and creating new rituals like that hour of the day well when you drink all the time by the way and you're self-employed yeah. you've got a lot of holes and rituals to fill and one of the things that I think is very overwhelming for a new person tackling new sobriety is like thinking about all these rituals they have to feel like well I can't go to the wedding what are people going to say when I can't go to the happy hours and I can't go to the weddings and you start seeing all the things you're missing out on which is really collectively hard to deal with. So I definitely understand why a lot of people succeed with one day at a time. I kind of found that for me, it was useful to put a stake in the ground and say, I'm going to do a year. I'm going to do this for a year. I'll put this out of my mind. No more daily struggle, but I know that I am going to have the daily struggle. So I started doing things like buying. I spent like I know we all save a bunch of money by not drinking Chardonnay yeah. every day or whatever our poison is. You buy other choices. things. You do buy other things. I bought, I, you know, it was so nice, though. I bought myself like $80 worth of tea and a little tea set like you just showed. Um, I bought um, myself some new exercise wear. I was like, well, I'm going to exercise every day. You know, I didn't <laughs> go too well crazy. <laughs> you know, maybe I spent, I'm pretty thrifty. So I only, you know, it was only like a couple hundred dollars that I spent on myself in the first. I bought myself some like lotion or something that I would never buy. <laughs> Funny enough, one of, uh, 
there was a conversation today. It was that's so strange. It's a conversation today. How many times we went to bed without any facial rating? You know. Oh yeah. No or brushing your teeth because yeah. you're like too. Yeah, you <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what was so dumb that I used to do. This goes. This annoyed every partner that I was ever with, but. I don't know if you ever did this, but I would take, I needed wine with me so much all the time mentally that I would even bring a glass of wine to bed, even though, even if I was kind of done drinking and I'd only drink like a little bit more. It's stupid, right? You're about to fall asleep. What do you need that for? And then I would wake up and there'd be like half a glass of wine. And my ex-husband at the time was like, that's such a waste. You know, if you're not going to drink it, don't, don't pour it right pour before it. you're going to bed. Because <laughs> at the time I was bringing, I was buying like fifteen dollar bottles, so it was probably like a five dollar, four dollar waste. But I just it was like something I just needed to have I right there. Took many a glass of, yeah, I took many a glass of wine to bed. Woken up the next morning and seeing half a glass, and it was so hard to carry that half a glass to the kitchen and yeah. pour it down the sink. It was. I never drank it. Was it like, it was God. almost like grief. or <laughs> Almost in tears. You know? That is exactly what it is. It is grief. You do because it's like the visual evidence of what you yeah. were just doing. Or in my case, think, oh gosh, it is. It's so all the reminders that we used to have, like the empty bottles and the transactions in your checking account. And, you know, I would, I would do this thing where I would swear I was going to quit. So I would decide to buy like some nice bottles of wine. Like I'd be like, well, I'm going to quit. So I'm going to buy this like $25 bottle of Chardonnay because this will be my last one. (laughs) What a bunch of horseshit. I can't even tell you how many $25 last bottles. We have told ourselves so many lies. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found the first time I fell off the wagon, it was when my mom passed away and I was here. I I was about to go over to the UK and I'm on the plane and there's the stewardess with the meal. The wine with the meal? I went, yes, please. And that was it. I'm gone. I totally related to all that pain and grief that you spoke about, about losing your mother, because there's nothing quite like losing your parents. And my mom died when I was relatively young, but she also died on my on my daughter's birthday, which was really just a weird thing to experience because my daughter was only four at the time. And, you know, so, I mean, not that I don't enjoy all my daughter's birthdays. They're older now. They're 19 and um, it's a, it's, 13. There's that little reminder. Yes. There. The first five years, it was like every every time it was like, how do you celebrate you know, love, life and loss all in one day. And, you know, my dad would say things like, well, maybe it's supposed to be that way. Maybe that is how I life think, is. No, I think you, because we're visual, um, I always try and change the picture now. This is, mm. this is the way I do things. So your daughter's, um, someone had done a post a few weeks ago and they said for the first time since she lost her mom, she didn't drink. So she was able to celebrate her mom sober so I think we need we need to um give ourselves some grace uh in a way but um well I I didn't have the best of relationships with my mom and I think a lot of that was because I was the oldest daughter um I was expected to do so much 
Sometimes that um, makes it harder, though. That was yeah. in my case. Like, I didn't have a good relationship, and that made it harder, it almost. W- um, it was hard when I lost her, but in some ways, I think it would... This sounds a little strange. In some ways, I was sorry for me because I hadn't had that kind of relationship with mom that you see other mothers and daughters have. So I was a little sorry for me that I'd lost my mom and I hadn't had that kind of relationship. Absolutely. Um, So in some ways it was, uh, I had myself a pity party and I know I was drunk at my mom's funeral. I know Mm. I was drunk because I, I just necked the red wine like it was, you know, you think I was drinking Coca-Cola? Oxygen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How big a glass can you drink? Well, you know, just keep filling it. And I know I was I was drunk for my mom's funeral. And then once I did sober up, because I stayed drunk on and off, I was drinking heavily again for a good while. And I felt so guilty. So I compounded how I felt by being drunk which made yeah. me feel so guilty that I disrespected my mom that way. So what we do to ourselves emotionally, you know, it's, it's awful. Now I'm coming to terms with the fact that I can't change it. That was at a time when, you know, it's in the past. And while people say, well, you shouldn't forget the past, I don't forget the past but I can't go back and relive it and I can't go back and change how I felt. I can't go back and change my behavior. All I can do now is hope that the rest of the life I live, I respect the people around me. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's where I get a little bit scared about, I mean, I don't plan to go through the AA steps. I just don't, there's, there's a lot, I think I've taken things from the AA steps and applied them to my recovery, which is something that my therapist recommended, you know, get someone like a sponsor. So I reached out to chefs in our community, you know, mm-hmm. try to try to get a community of people, try to educate yourself, try to be, try to found a, try to find accountability partners. And those all things were things that I felt like, you know, I was taking from the things that I could see worked about AA, but I think the scary part about the step four, when you're kind of like doing that fierce moral inventory, Mm -hmm. as they call it, is that, you know, for me, like, I feel like you in a lot of ways, like I want the past to inform my myself and my Mm -hmm. present, but I don't want to go back and sift through all the shit and make myself feel worse. And it's like, what what will just, that do? I just want to be happy. Yes, exactly. I just want to be happy. And I'm not going to feel, I'm going to stop myself feeling guilty for that, for the yes. things that happened prior. My right. life started on the 3rd of June in 2020, which is the time I decided that was it. Enough was enough. Yeah. Um, I'd started a couple, of, uh, a couple of weeks before it, and then I had one day where I fell off it. and I really didn't like it. Yeah. And I didn't drink much that night, actually. For me, I was really conservative. Mm-hmm. And I didn't drink much, but it, it, it didn't enhance anything at all. And I had no problem the next morning resetting. And I don't know, I'm, how many day zeros have I had in my life? I would 
hate to think, but people say, oh, I'm at day zero again. Yes, you're at day zero again, but you're at day zero trying again, trying yeah. again. You know, you're not giving up. And I think that's you saying how much Facebook, you, you put it out there on Facebook and the amount of people it reached that are really trying with this dependency because people, some people say it's a disease. You know, I, I call it a dependency. It's, I was dependent on cigarettes. I wasn't a tobaccoholic. I was dependent on cigarettes. Uh, So I call it a dependency, but you saying just that one story and putting it out there saying that, what you'd been through and what you were doing now and the amount of people that came back and said, well, I'm really trying and I've actually got an issue with this that's bothering me. The fact that people are coming to realizations and trying is what's important. But, and for me, what have I gained from giving up alcohol? I've gained a cupboard full of herbal tea I have got so many herbal teas. I love it. I can't wait to follow up with you and get your tea (laughs) notes. I'll be emailing you weekly. What's your new tea of the week, Paul? You could do that. You could do a a blog post on Sobertown about the best recovery teas. There is actually, um, there's one tea I bought and it's strange because I don't, I like the flavor, but I don't need it. It's a woman kind tea, and it's for more people about 20 years younger than I am. <laughs> so, a woman kind? Like, woman what do you kind. mean? Like, it's supposed to help increase your libido? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I gotta look for Oh my this gosh, tea. no, there's nothing wrong. Um, there's another thing you discover, isn't it, when yeah. you give up alcohol? And that's yeah. the joy of it. You start looking after yourself. I mean, I'm older, yes, but I love doing fun things now. I've discovered since I gave up alcohol the word fun. And, you know, someone will probably look at me and think, oh, my God, but I don't care. I am me. Um, As Karina and I have said, I am. And I am, and I love me. That's Joy is one thing I truly discovered that I truly love. And back to my herbal tea, I found myself a beautiful little herbal teapot that you can hang your tea bag on the side. It holds your little Mm -hmm. tea bag and it's bright lime green and I love it. I've discovered color. And that sounds a little strange, I think, but I've discovered color, bright colors. Like, uh, you mean the world looks more colorful to you? Yes, mm-hmm. I totally, I do feel that a lot. I feel a lot more of a connection to myself and just nature and others. You know, I feel, I just feel all around more like the old person that I once was pre-alcohol. Yeah. I really think back to that those 20-year-old years where I just felt happy to be alive, happy to get out of the car and look at something for the first time. And all mm-hmm. that was filtered through this, where's my next drink coming from, fog that only got more dense and dense over the years. Yeah, it was like living in a gray world. 
now Absolutely. we're living in a colorful world we've got this beautiful color around us because of life I mean I'm starting to grow chamomile I thought oh, why not I'll have a go at this so I'm starting to grow I've got a, a nice pot of chamomile I've um I've got as most people know I've got my Buddha go there's one of the things I bought that cost about 12 bottles of wine so uh, you know I'm only cheap <laughs> what was it what was it though my Buddha what? I bought oh, a, a Buddha, a big one. Yeah. It's it's easily about two foot tall. <laughs> oh, I want it. So <laughs> I do. Um, you need I, to send me a picture. We need to put it on the sofa. <laughs> I will somewhere. do. I will do. And um I was uh, I, I do you meditate then as well. I do, do you... I I would some people say meditate. I meditate, that's the word for it, but I sit quiet. Yeah, that's meditation. I sit, yeah, I sit really quiet and I love it. Um, what I've done is I've I've created this small garden almost. It um, I've got a, a deck, and I kept thinking, what can I put this Buddha in? I'm dreadful. I'll 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 think of something and I'll get it, and then I think, okay, now how do I do this? And like everything, it evolves as I go along. You know, it, yeah. it, <laughs> like I think is it an old in Uncle Tom's cabin, like Topsy, it growed. Um, I thought, okay, how can I do this? So I ended up going to the pet, getting in on the pet website and buying the bottom of a large dog crate, the large aluminium base. Then I hauled some soil and some sand. Then I hauled these bags of black rock. And then I put my Buddha there and I put some succulents around him. Oh, that and sounds nice. It was nice. And... Um, my husband said, well, where's my Buddha? So I said, okay, let's buy, let's see what we can do. So we found this small laughing Buddha and it's gorgeous. So we've got that one. And I was having a really bad spell just over a week ago, well, about two weeks ago. Um, my youngest son was turning 40. It was his birthday. And with COVID and everything, I hadn't, it suddenly hit me that I hadn't held my children for over a year, I'd seen them obviously on Zooms and FaceTimes and Google Duo and whatever app we're on at the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but I hadn't literally had my hands on my children for over a year. Yeah, that's I got hard. very emotional. And some of my sober sisters unknowingly sent me a gift because they'd seen my Buddha garden growing. And it was a little baby Buddha and he's got a candle and he's solar. So when I sit out there in the dark, there's this little candle glowing on this little baby Buddha. And it's just, Aww. I couldn't cry that day. I'd walked and I couldn't cry. I couldn't get this emotion out. Then this Buddha arrived and the floodgates opened and it was just absolutely amazing. You know, the feeling. That's what I, another thing I love about sobriety is feeling. feeling. Yeah. That's what you don't realize so much for years that you're just numbing everything. Mm -hmm. And you know that you're numbing pain and uh, maybe all sorts of grief and things that you want to numb, but you don't realize you're numbing your joy and your soul and your perceptions and your colors, like you say. Yeah. And yes, it does. It's amazing what makes 
you cry when, when you're so, but it's such an amazing feeling. Even if it's sad, it's amazing. You feel like alive again. And that is like, That's when it. you feel that like coming back to life, that sense of waking up again, it's really something that, you know, when I see the people who slip and fall off the wagon and they're like, well, I, we did, you know, I did 30 days. It counts for something. I'm like, yes, it does. Keep going. You know, yeah. but I really, all I want is for them to get to the three plus month mark because I feel like it really does change after three months. Like I really start feeling a huge turn after three months. I think is it in, um, in AA, they say attend 90 meetings in 90 days because it takes that long. So you're saying the three months, it, it correlates to what AA put out there. Uh, is that what you experienced when you quit? Did yeah. you feel like, how long did it take you to feel good again? The colors the first, returning to your uh, world. <laughs> with this what with this time, probably about two months in, because um, I, I did walk mornings when I was drinking. I don't know how I did it. I'd be sucking air because... Drinking does affect your breathing. A lot of people don't realize how bad. I know this because I live at high altitude. <laughs> I and felt I'll, like I was going to die on some of these hikes. No kidding. Yeah. Um, and I'd be out there and the sweat would be pouring and I'd be sucking air. And I think, oh, God, why did I drink that last night? Why am I out here this morning? But within two months of giving up the alcohol this time, I noticed a lot more. I have to say that um, when I think about the two previous times I gave up alcohol, when I think about it honestly, I was probably a dry drunk for three years the first time and a dry drunk for almost a year the second time because my mind never gave up alcohol. I gave up alcohol, but the head didn't. The head was still. Yeah. This time the head and the, the mind and the body are together. Everything has given up alcohol. It doesn't want alcohol. Yeah, and within two huge. months this time, um, going out walking every morning, that's when I started to feel it. I started to breathe better. I wasn't sweating so much. I was enjoying the sunrises. I was starting to come alive, as you say. And Drifter, as we know, Mr. Delete, um, he left the app, but he and I became friends off the app. And we would talk on my walks. And I talked a lot of my emotions and things out on those walks. And before I realized it, I was sober. And I was ecstatic. To me, it's it's bubbly. It, it's like all these fizzy bubbles inside. You, sometimes it's just too much to contain. You just, you just feel so unbelievable. And when you see people trying and trying and trying and you're just sitting there, it's like being behind the toddler when they first walk, you, you're ready to catch them, you know, and you just really wish that they would keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, you know, just keep going. It will happen. It will, you know, you'll get there. And you really wish for people to get these feelings that we are feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I do feel pretty fortunate, actually, because even though alcohol and my abuse of it led me to feel depressive thoughts, suicidal thoughts, 
I am really feeling lucky that I didn't have underlying depression or something else like a mental health um, concern that once I quit, it was like I could return to normal. I wasn't sure if that was going to be the case, if something was really wrong with me, you know, because yeah. there is a lot of this what's wrong with me internal dialogue as you try to get clean and you slip and you feel like I can't do this. And you look in the you know? mirror in the morning and you think, why why does this one thing defeat me? Why can I not do this one thing? How much do you drinking? think, how much do you think like perspective plays into it? Like your own way of saying to yourself, it's like the language that we tell ourselves, right? Like if we tell ourselves, I'm going to be happy without alcohol, you know, how much does that internal dialogue do you think play into that, that perspective of like, I can do yeah, self-motivation, a good perspective. How much do you think that kind of internal brainwashing maybe someone might view it as? Because I can tell you in the beginning, I didn't, I didn't want to believe that Annie Grace is out there. I felt like I was being brainwashed. I'm like, alcohol is not poison, it's wine. Everybody's drinking it can't be poisoned yeah. <laughs> and then, the marketing you know, people do a wonderful yes. job why would they sell us this if they, if it was so bad but i'm a great i'm i'm a believer in self-motivation um yeah. i get um i talk to myself a lot actually <laughs> me too i do it must be an aquarian thing <laughs> <laughs> standing in front of the mirror in the morning and looking at myself and i would have this why why do you do this to yourself and I would argue with myself about it and I think I must said it perfectly in that when she stopped when she gave up the alcohol she stopped arguing with herself yeah and that was so true there was no argument once the alcohol was gone there's no argument and I, yeah. that is an expression that totally I understood because the times when you're drinking and you're arguing with yourself, no, I'm not going to drink that tonight. I'm not going to drink that tonight. Well, maybe just one. <laughs> I know. <sighs> I know. It's, it's, it's just... it, oh, and you think, oh my God, what have I done? But then when you get sober, really sober, you motivate yourself in a different way in that, yeah. oh, life's good. It's wonderful. And you, you become more, you have a more positive attitude because you are seeing the benefits that yeah. uh, sobriety is bringing. And I started growing things in the garden that I hadn't done in several years. Um, and I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, oh, I can grow beets. I can grow carrots. <laughs> Go me. You know, and it, self-motivation, I think, is huge in sobriety. Yeah. It really is. And, yeah, internal dialogues all the time. All the time. I've heard, I've heard from people say things like, you can be happy if you want to, if you believe that you can be happy. And that that's kind of like pep talky, um, what's the word for it, like um, – Rah, trying rah. to think how yeah <laughs> rah, rah. I, I used I used to think that like 
Stitch oh, on that's it. A load of, <laughs> that's a load of, uh, that's a load of crap, you know, yeah. because I, I just, I was so negative. So, and I'm not a negative person. I'm no. really a positive person. So to feel like this, you know, to be fueled from a substance to just continue this negative thought loop was just, you know, it's one of those things, like you say, you can't see until you leave it. But I do think that like, you know, perspective, if you tell yourself that you will be happy without this, you just have to give it time. You will be, yeah. you know, it's hard because at first you just think, well, not I'm not going to have what, this. Yeah. I'm not going to have that, you know. And another thing we have to realize is not every day is happy. Yes. There are true. normal days here. And the, I, I was, I go down rabbit holes when I go looking for something and I came across the difference between melancholy and depression. And I think you do suffer with melancholy when you first give up alcohol. Oh yeah. And melancholy. Sure. Yeah. Uh, melancholy can, and it, I think we term them blah days. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those days. And um, we were talking about it once before, uh, I can't remember who I was talking with. And I've come to expect that if I have a blah day, it's it's a normal day. It's, you know, I'm not feeling happy. I'm not feeling sad. It's just a normal day. And because I used to drink, I didn't have any of those normal days. Yeah. There were all such swings of emotion. I was either sad as shit or mm-hmm. happy as Larry. You know, there was no middle ground. So now there's a middle ground ground and yeah, there are blah days. And I think too, it's one of the greatest hurdles to get over in early sobriety because you, you keep hearing from people that are at our stage or beyond. It's amazing. It's beautiful. You're going to love life colors, blah, blah, blah. And you want that so much, but it's not that at first. At first, it's white knuckle, put the blinders on, get from one hour to the next, look at the app, you know, all the things. And and there is a very real self-sabotage beyond the many, among the many, that you sit there and think, well, I don't feel any better. (laughs) I might as well go back to drinking. (laughs) At least drinking made me feel better. Yeah. And I think that's once you clear that hurdle and others like going to your first social function without mm-hmm. needing to yeah. drink or maybe if you every Friday or, you know, like everybody has their rituals. Like I had so many, but you know, like the bath, if you finally learn, well, what do I need to treat myself in this bath? Okay. Maybe I'll get some um, nice bath salts and some candles and I'll drink a kombucha or a nice tea. And, and once you start to kind of replace those things with the booze and you clear those little small hurdles and those small wins, they start to add up to big ones. And then the big ones don't look as scary. Then it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, well now I can't, now I think I can handle going to that wedding without booze because I had somebody just tell me that not that long ago, like, well, I, I want to give up alcohol, but like, I've got this wedding coming up, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and we always have something, right. That we, we we talked, Karina and I were talking about this yesterday and I talked about my son's wedding reception where I didn't drink at all because I didn't want to spoil his wedding reception. And I had a wonderful time drinking sparkling water and, People would say, do you want to drink? And I would say, no. And they say, you're not drinking. And I'd say, no. And I think if you're firm enough. Yeah. You, and we said yesterday, you have to own your sobriety. 
Yeah, absolutely. You have to own it. I'm so Yeah, because if you don't, then that leaves that, that door open. Yeah. yeah. Don't 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 give yourself a little um, you know, a, a way in for the little demon as as our friend calls him. The, 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 uh, the demon bastard. I, the I call mine the booze pig. <laughs> I I've got Winnie the Wino, so um yeah. <laughs> the because I was a wino. No, you cannot give yourself anyway and um, i think when you go to these uh, these functions it how will i do it that's the fear factor and the yeah. fear factor is actually good because it keeps you aware in some yeah, ways it's survival it's one of you and annie grace talks about your survival mechanisms that we dull with alcohol and you've got your fear factor and we said well you know as uh, catherine grace says have a plan before you go. Um, give yourself an escape route if necessary. I say take a wingman. You know, if you've got someone who knows that you are giving up alcohol, have someone who's there can support you, etc. Yeah. But I think don't hesitate when someone says, "Would you like a drink?" Go mm, uh, just say, "Well, no, thank you. I'm not drinking." And just yeah. If they it is. It, it is. It's important to own it. Yeah, if they question it, screw them. Like, then yeah. they're not your friend. I mean, seriously, like that. I spent so many years, probably years of my life, worrying about how will I be perceived? Will I not be a fun wife? Will I not be a fun friend? Will I not have fun? Will I be even more depressed? You know, well, what will I do, you know, on vacation and all sorts of things that were just totally pointless to think of now that I now that I see now but you know ever since I've owned my sobriety a little bit more to my friends now they're like I'm about to go on a trip to Florida which is like mm -hmm. COVID ground yeah. zero I oh, just yes. got my first jab yesterday my oh, arm feels like it weighs 3,000 pounds which jab did you get I got the Moderna the Moderna one mm-hmm I got the. You look uh, like you're saying something like, mm, "I heard that one sucks." <laughs> no, I think different people react in different. I was lucky; I got the Pfizer, um, and yeah. I had absolutely no reactions at all. Yeah, I feel fine. My arm yeah. hurts because I was like, "Yeah, just do it in this arm," and yeah. I didn't think like, "Oh, I sleep on this side. That's smart of me." Turn over for a couple <laughs> well, of nights. Whatever, but, right? Yeah. It, so even I was Florida. emotional standing in line. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, well, because it's like historic moment. Everybody's getting vaccinated. Maybe we'll finally not have you know hundreds of thousands of people dying. You know of this yeah. terrible uh, coronavirus. But yeah, I'm going to Florida to visit two of my lifelong best friends, and they're they're both probably going to be drinking. But they, one of them, you know. I actually don't think one of mine will be drinking. The other one was, they've both been very supportive. They've both been like, we're not going to drink with you out of the respect. And I'm kind of like, uh, no, just drink if you want. Like, don't worry about that. That's very touching. But the last thing I want is for you to be not doing what you want to do on your vacation of all things. So, um, you it, know, that's it, great so that you feel that way. Thanks. But... Thanks, but no and you also worry that you're creating a false environment because you've got yeah. to get used to these things in life. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm not know, worried about it at all. 
There might be a moment. There were, this is where I lived for a dozen years. There were so many places that I would go and get amazing beachy cocktails right on the water. And I know those, there's one place that I'll be like, that was so good. I remember those. Mm-hmm. I remember so it good. well. It's but, a memory now. But, yeah, it's a memory now. That's the thing too. Like I have been a bit zen about that sort of thing this time. More like, you know what? I drank enough wine literally for like a family of Italians, you know, like (laughs) seriously, I drink over, you know, 365 bottles a year, you know? And so I've, I've drank and yeah. And I've drank so much. And it's like, I did that for 20 years. Like I've had enough wine, like who gives a fuck now? Like, it's like, I don't need that. You said um, about the fun thing. Are you a more fun person now sober, would you say? I feel more fun. I feel, I feel more, I just feel happier. Like I just, I look at everything with a, with a sense of respect and beauty and appreciation that I didn't look at before, even, you know, and I can tell I, you know, I know I must talked about the relationship with her kids and them saying that they didn't like it when she drank. And I have not had that conversation with my kids. I feel, I fear that conversation, but I can tell that things are better between us. Not that things were bad, but you know, they seem to engage with me more. I feel better. I feel like a better mom. I feel like I'm more present for them. Yeah, for sure. Relaxed. Yeah. I think yeah, because, and I don't know about you, but you feel like your whole body just starts to relax down. I mean, my shoulders are no longer around my earlobes sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> relax. It's, but, just, it's just an anxiety that is gone that is so nice, you know? I love it. And I still I get stressed it. a little bit, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. <laughs> we well, all do, right? Thank you so much yes. for coming back on here. I really enjoyed yes. it. I would like to do it again maybe another month or so from now because... Yes, anytime. I think... It would be lovely. What we say hopefully can help someone realized that yeah it's tough at the beginning but further along down the road stick with this because it does life does get better it will and be worth you, it you you start to live because when you're way drunk all the time you're not alive so thank you so much darling i've truly enjoyed it time to go thank you kettle back on get my thank you my ever ever full teapot so thank you sweetheart i've really enjoyed this uh me too stay sober stay sober will do